0: If the law of God only works to show us how sinful we are and it puts us all under judgment and it awakens sinful behavior in us, and it does, you know, tell your kids not to eat any cookies in the cookie jar and you'll see what I mean, then isn't the law bad? That was the question that was put to Paul. Today, we'll consider his answer. Welcome everyone to the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joe Van Hoogen. It's been my honor to be the Bible teacher for this ministry for over 25 years. We rejoice to be able to come to you every weekday. To learn more about our work around the world and also our mission fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7-14, through 14, Paul answers a suggestion that the law, because it is the deliverer of bad news, you're a sinner and a condemned one at that, that it must be sin itself. Paul says, Absolutely not. The law is spiritual. The law is holy and just and good. Today we consider just how it is so. How is the law holy and how is the law just and how is the law good? And we'll take what we've said already in the introduction and help us look at this. And here's our answer. And there are two basic points to our answer look at them fairly extensively. The first part of the answer we'll look at more extensively than the second, but it's this. The first part of the answer is this. The law is holy, and the law is just, and the law is good because the law reveals a holy, just, and good God. The law is holy and just and good because it reveals a holy and just and good God. I want you to go back to Israel as they come before Mount Sinai. I want you to remind you that the nation of Israel has been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. During that time they've largely forgotten and lost contact and understanding of who is the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is going to reintroduce himself to them so that they know Him and understand Him and I want to suggest to you that as God leads them to know Him and understand Him so they understand themselves and their true need He's going to bring that to a head and He's going to bring that to a point of maturity when they become, as a nation, come before Mount Sinai. What Paul says in Romans chapter 7 is autobiographical, but it also is a reflection of, and he's engaging the Jews and their own journey, and their spiritual journey, and it's found in this experience. Upon the time in which God first comes to the nation of Israel, and he begins revealing himself you think of the nation of israel like this infant and their impression of god is god has come to deliver us and god has come to rescue us and god is the one who will protect us and we'll see how god does that and by the way when i was a little boy that's my impression of god as well god was a deliverer and god was a protector when i would go to bed at night i would ask god to watch over my whole house i'd ask him to put an invisible bubble around us so none of the bad guys could get in and he would keep us safe from all of the bad guys and Part of the reason I wanted that was I had a pretty sublime life and I didn't want it interrupted at all, right? I wanted to be able to go to the next day to play with my toys the next day. So keep those bad guys away from disrupting all the good that I'm experiencing in life. That was my approach. That was my understanding of God. Think about it for a moment, the nation of Israel. As God begins to make himself known to him, he comes to the nation of Egypt to release Israel from their bondage. And God sends a series of acts upon Egypt in order to loosen their hand upon the Jews and release them. And so he sends a series of plagues and judgments upon Egypt. The, the Nile turns to blood. There's a plague of frogs and a plague of lice and a plague of flies. And there's pestilence that comes upon their livestock. And there's boils that come upon man and beast A plague of hail that's mixed with fire and a plague of locusts and a plague of darkness that sweeps over all the land. And finally, God brings a judgment where all the firstborn children of the people of Egypt die. Now, here's the interesting thing in all those plagues. None of those plagues come upon the land of Goshen. During all that time the people of Israel where they live and where they're living in Egypt and by the way the Egyptians left them alone because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Israelites other than have the Israelites work for them and be slaves for them they thought of the Israelites as the impure ones all this judgment comes upon the Egyptian people in the Egyptian land but the land and the Jews themselves don't experience and what do they come away with God is rescuing us and God is protecting us and God is putting his bubble over us and keeping us safe and he's dealing with all these bad guys all these bad people because he's going to deliver us and then the day comes when they're released from their slavery and they go to the red sea as god directs them and as we know the story the egyptian army is coming down upon them and as the egyptian army is coming down upon them a pillar of fire comes down between the army and the people of israel and at the same time there's this great wind that comes that pushes back the waters of the red sea and the people cross over the red sea here's an interesting thing there is nothing in the story that indicates that the people were feared with fear or that they were trembling. It was if God sent over them a sense of peace, a sense of serenity that he was providing their way of escape and he was still protecting them from the bad guys and they come across on the other side of the Red Sea and when they get over the Red Sea they rejoice and they sing praises and then God brings them to the waters of Mara that are bitter and God provides a way for the waters to be healed so they can drink out of the waters and he delivers that I'm the Lord who heals you and, and the, God begins to pour manna down from heaven to feed them he's a provider he's taking care of them and God actually at nighttime covers them from the cold of the desert with a warm glow of his Shekinah cloud as a fire by night and the daytime and the heat of the Sun coming upon him, that same cloud comes over the nation as a shade shading them. What do you think their idea of God is? God's a protector and God's a provider and God's a rescuer and He's watching over us. They're in their infancy, in their childhood. And it's a good thing to know that God is not done revealing Himself to them. God takes them out Sinai and now things change. Prior to this, we don't see them trembling. God is always on their behalf. God's always protecting them from the bad guys and providing for them from the bad situations in life. Then they come to Mount Sinai, and everything changes. At Mount Sinai, God comes to the people and instructs Moses, tell them to clean themselves and wash themselves, because in three days, I'm going to come before you. So all the people have to make themselves ritually clean. and God instructs Moses at that time to put boundaries around the mountain, because whether they clean themselves or not, if any of them come upon the mountain that I'm going to reveal myself to them because I'm going to come down and I'm going to reveal myself. If anyone comes upon that mountain, they'll be put to death. Then God comes on day three and he comes in a thick cloud and he descends upon the mound. From the cloud, there are flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder that are heard. And then we're told that there's a supernatural blast, the eerie blast of a blaring trumpet that is roaring out over in the ears of people from the mountain as God reveals himself. And then we're told they experience a whole new sensation before God because we're told in Exodus 19 that the people began to tremble. And as they're trembling all of a sudden there's fire and smoke that comes down and begins to billow upon the mountain and the earth shook and it quaked and it trembled and all these things are taking place. These are new experiences before God. And then God speaks And he speaks the words of the Ten Commandments. And now the people have a complete dread that falls upon them at the voice of God. Exodus twenty eighteen tells us that once God had spoken, this is what the people say. All the people, what the people did, all the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they moved and stood afar off. They ran, they hightailed it, and they got at a distance because God was to be feared. They were treated in fear, and then they spoke to Moses, and they said, Moses, you speak to us, and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Don't let him speak anymore. you be the one to listen to him. And they're filled with a sense of fear and awe. Moses says in verse 20 of Exodus 20, don't worry, God has come to prove you. He's revealing you to yourselves in order that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. So let me suggest to you that this experience is the experience God wants to lead us into when he brings us before the law and he brings us before the lawgiver and our eyes are open to what it's saying in our lives. It's an awareness that he brings to us in a sense. The Ten Commandments, we'll go there for a second. They're really not Ten Commandments. They're one commandment. They're basically one commandment with ten applications. And the commandment is to know God, is to properly respond to God as God is revealing Himself. When you come before the law, you see that the law represents at its base the very nature of who God is, who God is, a holy God, a just God. It represents His nature pressing in upon us restraining sin in us and at the same time calling for us to respond in a way of life, respond to the light that God is revealing of Himself and so in light of who God is as He reveals Himself, we're not to worship any other God. We are to have no other gods before us. We're to have God only. We're just to have Him. That's the myth. And in light of who God is, we're to make no idols for ourselves because we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not to worship the things that He has created. We're to worship the Creator. In light of who God is, we are to never take His name thoughtlessly upon our lips or to misuse it to the advantage of our own schemes and our own flesh, our own desires, because God is not currency that we can throw around, and His name is not currency that we can throw around for our own purchase so we can get what we want. A lot of who God is we're to set apart a day to anticipate the rest of Eden that he is one day going to restore to us all. In other words, we're to regularly and weekly recalibrate our lives to the great and glorious end that God is planning and promised for us, and we're to live in light of that coming day. We're to always live with this eschatological confidence that God is controlling all things and bringing them to a great and glorious end. We're not to sink ourselves into the moment and the hour in which we're living and our world is living in, just scratching and clawing to make one day and the next day and the next day work on their behalf, but in all those things, we're to rest and take our confidence and faith that God is sovereign over all of history. He's bringing it to a glorious end. He's bringing Eden back, and we're to rest in Him on that day. In light of who God is, We're to honor our parents because they're the first emissaries of His provision and His protection and of His providence over our lives, God's providence over our lives. Because of who God is, we're not to kill because God is the giver of life and He's given life to humans, particularly as those who bear His image. And we're not to defy that essential nature. God is life. We're living ways that express the life that God has given. We're not to commit adultery because... God is a faithful covenant-making God we're to orientate ourselves to his faithfulness and his covenant-keeping nature. And we're not to steal because God is a personal God who gives to each individual as he pleases. I don't take what God has given to them. It's God's initiative and God's desire. I'm not to lie because God is a God of truth. He's real and he demands reality from us as we come before him. We're not to covet. Because God is sovereign over where he places us and what he entrusts to each individual as a stewardship. I'm not to covet what God has sovereignly entrusted to you or given to another person. Instead, I'm to recognize his sovereignty over my own life. So the law represents who God is, how holy God is, how perfect God is, how complete God is. And the law brings me before the one who inspires the law it brings me before this holy and just and perfectly good God and calls me to respond in a way that's reflective that I am meeting him and engaging with him that's why the law is holy and that's why the law is just and that's why the law is good it brings us before a holy and just and good God now listen when you come before that God you not only discover the essence of holiness and justice and goodness, but in His presence, you discover what is unholy and what is unjust and what is not good. And that's the other reason why the law is holy and just and good. Thanks for joining us today at the Bread of Life. We'd love to hear from you. Go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links to send us a message of encouragement or a prayer request. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.